Hey, this is Brian Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. Brought to you by Pariah Pickups. What you want, what you need, what you love. Check them out at pariahpickups.com. And if you want to support the No Sleep Till Sudbury podcast on Patreon, just go to patreon.com slash Brent Jensen Music for details. And I'm also now available for music-based speaking engagements. For more information on that, visit brentjensenmusic.com. All right, this is the second part of a two-part series featuring Guns N' Roses singer W. Axel Rose. Last week, I took you through a factual and historical account of Rose's life from his childhood through to modern day. This week, I want to go beyond that and touch on my personal perceptions of him, not just as a musician, but as a pop culture icon. In other words, last week we talked about what the music sounds like. This week, we talk about how it feels. I've said in the past that W. Axel Rose is the consummate anti-hero. He's intrigued me significantly since the summer of 1987 when I bought my first copy of Appetite for Destruction, and I attribute this to the fact that when I used to think I had finally pinned him down and understood him for trying so desperately not to be understood, he would just take me in a completely new direction again. It would have been easy to write Rose off as an eccentric, self-absorbed jerk in the recent past, but there's a lot more of the story if you're really paying attention. Since Appetite for Destruction was released in 1987, Axl Rose has occupied a unique space, partly because he was the de facto leader of a band that proved they were exceptional in the truest sense of the word. They were considered by a lot of people myself included, is capable of being their generation's rolling stones. Bold statement, yeah. But, in my opinion, guns could back it up. They had that special thing that so often defies description. That thing can originate from any number of sources. There's an old saying that goes, sometimes you have to separate the artist from the art. But that advice is only helpful when the art is to your liking, and The artist is a jerk. There are likely those who contemplate Axl Rose's behavior separately from the quality of his musical output, but we can also consider the quality of the music to be a result of the psychosis noted by that doctor who assessed Rose back when he was a teen, in the same way that Vincent van Gogh's artistic genius was viewed as a byproduct of his madness. People have made this correlation in the past with musical artists like Kurt Cobain and Sid Barrett and others, and without making any unnecessary comparisons, it may be possible that the same general theory applies in Rose's case. Now that special thing, whether a pathology or not, is responsible for compelling the artist to see the landscape in an entirely different way to see and to hear things in ways that others don't, or can't. Take Guns N' Roses' song, Patience, for example. Now, what makes that song special is how the song is conveyed. Guns may have originated on the Sunset Strip in Los Angeles in the 80s, among all of those other hair bands of the day, but they certainly didn't deploy the same formulas. Patience is not your typical formulaic power chord ballad. 
It's instead delivered with a stonesy authenticity. But the most important thing about it is that it features an element no other band of GNR's Sunset Strip ilk could have pulled off. That factor that would help to establish Axl Rose and Guns N' Roses as a dominant musical force. It was the whistling. No one else would have dared to try to get away with something like that at that time in that scene. But the combination of Rose's brazen vision, musical sensibility, and his eccentricity allowed him to carry it out in such a way that it made it legitimate and believable. And people got it. It worked. And lo and behold, two years later, what do we hear on Scorpion's mega-hit ballad, Wind of Change? Yeah, whistling. Rose's ability to recognize possibility in things where others didn't really did set him apart during the earlier days of Guns N' Roses. Seemingly innocuous little things easily overlooked, like the creation of vocal ad-libs and melodic harmonies that really enhance compositions, both his own and those of others. A great example of this is the acoustic version Guns N' Roses performed in the mid-80s of Rolling Stones tune Jumpin' Jack Flash. Rose adds different vocal melodies to the song's chorus, a new one each time, breathing exciting new life into an old classic. And he, he does it often. My favorite Guns cover is a little-known Black Sabbath deep cut from Technical Ecstasy called It's All Right. It's incredible because while the original is an obscure throwaway track sung by Sabbath drummer Bill Ward, Rose performs the song as a simple vocal and piano-only version, completely transforming how I receive the song's overall message. This new musical arrangement seems to augment the lyrics so much more effectively. In my mind, it's really how the song should have been recorded in the first place, really. But Rose seems to have this vision that enables him to interpret and develop these things. There is a flip side to Rose's artistic impressions, self-indulgent works like My World, and some of the other unnecessary material that clutters the Illusions records. Rose's point-blank intensity could be unsettling. When we're shown more fleeting glimpses of his personal troubles, like in Don't Cry or Don't Damn Me, they're easier to digest than stuff like My World, or sorry, from Chinese democracy. And whether or not it's your cup of tea, Axl Rose's singing voice is one of the most powerful in the history of rock and roll. Another bold statement, yes, but again, I stand by it. He sings in several tonal colorations and timbres, all distinctly recognizable as unique axolisms something he began developing as a young choir boy back in Lafayette, Indiana. If singing voices were knives, Rose's would be a machete. This is particularly clear when you listen to him performing with Tom Petty on Free Fallen and with Bruce Springsteen on Come Together. Petty was fantastic. He had this sneering, badass singing voice on stuff like Refugee and everything pre-Full Moon Fever. And of course, the boss was obviously no slouch in the vocal department either, but when you hear them singing side-by-side side with Rose in a neutral element like the MTV Awards, Rose's power is just undeniable. 
A key cornerstone of W. Axel Rowe's worship is rooted in that histrionic swagger of appetite for destruction in the Illusions records. And while I do love them all, when it finally came out, Chinese democracy dared the listener to consider Rose as an upper echelon songwriter, in my opinion. The democracy record takes a lot of stick for being overhyped and for having a level of quality not necessarily commensurate with the amount of time that it took to create. If listeners were looking for the natural succession to Appetite for Destruction or even to the Use Your Illusion records, it's not there. To really enjoy the material, you need to consider Chinese democracy as just a completely separate entity in and of itself, and not a natural progression of Guns N' Roses whatsoever. When I heard the early demos for the record for the first time, I remember feeling like I knew that this would not sound at all like the conventional Guns N' Roses that we all imagine when we think about our understanding of what the band is. But I did hope there would be some distinguishable remaining measure of what Rose had been as an artist on the record. And there was. Rose demonstrated a legitimate understanding of melody and composition, swelling crescendos, subtlety, and wry cleverness on a larger scale than he had on anything that Guns had previously recorded. There were all sorts of new elements introducing themselves on Chinese democracy. Trip-hop beats, accompanied by flamenco guitar. The music was mostly powerful and very much relevant. I felt like Rose had successfully navigated away from what was Guns N' Roses and towards something else that was different with Chinese democracy. And so much so that I didn't think that he should have called this new incarnation Guns N' Roses. I felt like Rose could have easily branded this new project under a separate name. It was just so different. He could have released it as a solo artist, called it Axel, something like that, and, and inadvertently kept the Guns N' Roses brand alive to avoid the risk of a freefall into obscurity. But back then, it seemed clear that Rose, in his megalomaniacal style, recognized himself as the nucleus and thus sole and rightful proprietor of the Guns N' Roses namesake. And this new musical direction is a natural path that this entity would have taken under his leadership, with or without Slash and the remainder of the original band members. A real Axl Rose fan shouldn't have been surprised by the trip-hop beats and other elements that were never before heard on a Guns record. We all had to know that anything could have been possible after 1993's The Spaghetti Incident when we heard the remake of a 50s song, Since I Don't Have You, and a cover version of Charles Manson's Look at Your Game Girl. What was considered germane at any given time was completely up to Axl Rose back then. That's simply the way that it was in his world, and that didn't appear to be changing anytime soon. I'll admit that when he forged out on his own in the late 1990s, I anticipated a descent into oblivion from which he wouldn't ever recover. I remember reading about the GNR developments post-illusions that Rose wanted to take the band in a Nine Inch Nails industrial direction, that Moby was involved in production of the new record, that Zach Wilde would be joining the band that Rose was going to learn how to play lead guitar in a bid to replace Slash after he left. 
that airport incident in the late 90s where he took on a cop in a baggage inspection dispute that earned him jail time. All these things were bizarre and weirdly interesting to me at the time. Coupled with all of the common knowledge about Rose not showing up at gigs and all of his other similar behavior, I didn't have a lot of faith in this new guns thing. Part of me just wanted to write it off. But the thing is, I had happened to cross Axl Rose and Guns N' Roses at a point in my life where they were able to make an indelible impression on me, and I still felt a sense of community and loyalty. Back then, I recognized Rose as the tip of the spear. I was 18 years old. He was like an omnipotent ally to a rebellious small-town high school kid, an irresistible Pied Piper, beckoning to an impetuous teenage me. I wasn't an impressionable kid anymore, but I still felt an oblique allegiance to Rose. When it came time for Rose to re-emerge by appearing on the MTV Video Awards in 2002, I would be watching. But after what I saw, I wished I hadn't been. I was disappointed on a deeper level because I felt like Guns N' Roses was a little part of who I was at my core. And it was like a sign of the times that that part was now gone. The party was emphatically over. I remember feeling like something that I had believed in was now suddenly without validity and that it had wizened right before my eyes. And that actually bothered me a little bit. Regardless of all of his bizarre behavior, at the end of the day, I was rooting for Axl Rose. He was his own worst enemy back then, but I kind of feel like he knew that. Today, almost two full decades later, things are much different. As much as I didn't want it to happen, the original Guns N' Roses has more or less reunited. They recently released a new single called Absurd that sounds more like something from Chinese democracy than from the original members era, which may or may not validate my initial theory that Rose is in fact the songwriting nucleus of the band. In my first book, written in the late 2000s and also called No Sleep Till Sudbury, I wrote of W. Axel Rose as a concept. And I did that because at the time he was so well-versed in his utilization of mystique. There were so many contradictions and so few certainties. Rose was extremely dedicated to curating this very specific image he wanted the public to recognize. And part of that image was an intended aloofness towards the extremism his often inexplicable actions would draw. I wrote that this was the foundation of what I called the Church of Axel, an enterprise I estimated would almost certainly continue to enjoy economy of scale based on the polarized reception of whatever narrative he put out there for us back then. Whether we empathize because we think we understand his troubles, or because we take pleasure in hating him for conducting himself like a spoiled child. And where Axel Rose is concerned, these days almost feel like the final pages of a book that we've been reading for so long. The hurricane of anger and malevolence has all but blown itself out. The anti-hero is no longer. The denouement of the story is now upon us. 
Rose can be seen smiling so much more these days. During recent performances with his old guns mates, he looks like he's actually really having fun. And that mystique, now a no longer needed implement of days past. Thirteen years ago, I finished that No Sleep Till Sudbury chapter I dedicated to W. Axel Rose, called The Church of Axel, by saying I believed that he was wise enough, creative enough, and resilient enough to have the last laugh. But as the story draws to a close, it seems like the last laugh is less important now. It seems like a smile is good enough. This has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen. Till next time, folks. Take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide.